But before we start, as I was starting to prepare for this, um, I thought we need a review. It's been really three weeks since we've been into the text. Can you all hear me okay? It's been about three weeks since we've been in the text, so I wanted to review just where we are as we get into this hard, convicting, life-giving teaching, which God's Word is. Um, so where are we? Well, it's written by James, who is the author, who is known to be the brother of Jesus, and he calls himself a servant. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but he's speaking to all those churches that have been dispersed, little churches that meet in homes, dispersed along the Mediterranean shore. If you look at page 15 in your manual, you can just see that map that we have. These are probably churches in Greece, Egypt, Africa, and many other places outside Palestine. Though these churches were many and miles away, word still travels fast, and James has been made aware of problems and dissension in some of these churches. And he, as a sermon leader of the people, is giving them a letter in which he's correcting what he's heard is going on. From the beginning of the letter, we see he cares deeply for those he addresses by using the familiar term of brother, beloved. In 1-2, he calls them to be steadfast no matter the trials and suffering they are facing, which were many. In 1-5, he calls them to the higher standard of asking God for his wisdom, not relying on their own. He points out they're double-minded if they doubt, which is in 168, or if they hear the word but don't obey it in 122, or if they show partiality to others because of their standing in the world, 2, 1 to 7, if they claim to have faith but don't demonstrate it by caring for others or reflecting the Lord of glory. He stated from the beginning that the marks of a believer should be a bridled tongue looking after the less fortunate and not allowing the world to draw them in. Even two weeks ago, we heard from those who are representing different ministries of how we can see people care for others. Things that he's talking about are no different today, are they, ladies? No different. 2,000 years later, we still see the nature of man demonstrated the same ways James exhorts his flock. Through these strong warnings, though, he has encouraged them with nuggets of truth, some that I loved from James 1.12. He reminds them that God promises a crown of life to those who remain steadfast. He reminds them that by Christ's own will, they were brought forth by the word of truth and are the first fruits of his creatures, James 1.16-18 by encouraging them to get rid of all filthiness and wickedness and receive the implanted word which is able to save their soul. One twenty-one. that's what we call the new, test, the new covenant, a new heart. And then in those beautiful words of 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. But where do we find ourselves today? Right in the middle of the book. So we've got James 1 and 2, now we're at James 3 and then form five. These words are not minced. As he points out further, the need to bridle the tongue. Strong warnings, vivid imagery, and a direct emphasis. These things ought not to be so. 
There's no words of encouragement in 1 through 12. Just warnings and declarations. I'm sure as you all did your lesson, you might have been convicted a little bit. I sure was. So if we were looking at the next section of James that we're going to be discussing, it would be divided up like this. These are all teachings about the tongue. James 3, 1 to 12, the damage of the tongue. James 3, 13 to 19, the solution, which we're not touching on today. And James 4, 1 to 12, the problem of slander and dissension. As we remember, this would have been read as a letter. It wouldn't have been divided up, so they would have been hearing it all at once. But today, we're looking at James 3, 1 to 12. No passage in James displays the letter's indebtedness to the Old Testament and Jewish wisdom tradition as much as this text. Remember, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and he quotes from many of these wise sayings. These are down-to-earth warnings with godly guidance. So let's allow the implanted word to be received into our hearts. And I want you just to listen. These may be such familiar words. We've heard them. We think, oh, no, another lesson on the tongue. But would you listen to them afresh as I read them? Not many of you should become brothers. I'm sorry, become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, my sisters. These things are not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are hard, hard, convicting words. So needed. So I pray that your words written here, written down for us, recorded, the words that you, by the Holy Spirit, gave to James and now are in front of us. May teach us and correct us. May the words we receive in submission and go out refreshed, renewed, and encouraged because of you. In Jesus' name I pray.
You see that? <laughs> How many of you ever heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. It's a lie. How many of you still cringe at the memory of words that were spoken to you? Bones can eventually heal, but words have a way of echoing forever. Why is bullying a huge issue in our society and schools at the moment? And with the ease and accessibility of people reading our words instantaneously because the internet, our texts, Facebook, any of those things, Tweets. <laughs> More words are broadcast now than any time in history. Maybe you remember hearing someone say, oh, you're so lazy. You'll never amount to anything. Leave me alone, just go away. I don't love you anymore. Or someone offers to you a cynical or sarcastic remark. Or a child boasts to his friend, you aren't a good athlete, and then adds, just joking. Paul Tripp, when commenting on Luke 6.45, that out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, says, have you ever said to someone, oh, I didn't mean to say that? It would be more biblical to say, please forgive me for saying what I meant, because it hadn't, if it hadn't first been in your heart, it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. Just joking. There's always an element of truth in it. Words. We just survived the election season where negative ads and insults were rampant on TV and in our mailboxes. Words that bite, words that slander. Well, lately, the California fires have been rampant, literally suggesting the verb image that James uses over 2,000 years ago. A small spark can destroy acres of land, thousands of homes, and take many lives. It only takes a spark. Well, there are so many images, I wanted to do a PowerPoint for this. I never teach with PowerPoints. But the other night, my fifth grade grandson was working on an assignment he was giving on PowerPoint, and he made me a PowerPoint. So I want you to look at this first slide, because he said, Nana, it has to have a special effect. So it only takes a spark. See that? <laughs> <clears throat> In July and August, I was in California for a wedding, and I saw firsthand how quickly a fire can spread. Just a small stream of smoke in the distance to a few days later, a smoke-filled sky behind my sister's home is believed to have been started by a man who had a grievance against his neighbor. This is what it looked like behind her house. She sent me a picture of it. And finally, the devastation. Another special effect, I might add, <clears throat> the Holy Fire, named for Holy Jim Canyon, where it began August 6th, has blackened nearly 36 square miles. At one point, it prompted the evacuation of more than 20,000 people. It started as a spark. Words. <laughs> when I was 10 years old, <clears throat> I was in elementary school, I think I was in fourth grade, and in health class, we learned that people are not supposed to drive and drink. Well, I grew up with an alcoholic father. And later on in the day, we were in the car. And my dad had his flask between us. <laughs> and 
um, I said to him, Dad, today in class, I learned that you're not supposed to drink and drive. Well, the curses and words that came out of his mouth, it's nothing a child should have heard. Words. So let's explore the text just as we read. As you can see from your outline, that the first part of this is going to be on the power of the tongue, the damage of the tongue. I'm going to just lightly touch on the text and expand it a little bit. It doesn't need much expansion. It's pretty visible. And then on the back, how can we prevent this? The application part. So let's look at the text. James 3, 1 to 2. Not many of you should be teachers. The teaching ministry was a desired office in the early church as the gospel caught fire. James seems to be warning that not everyone should teach, especially if they are doing it for the wrong reasons, such as pride or self-elevation. Dan Doriani states regarding James 3, 1 to 2, teachers are especially vulnerable to failures of speech because their role demands that they speak so much. More words mean more errors. So why should not many teach? Because those who teach will be judged with greater strictness and because we all stumble in many ways. Greater knowledge brings with it great responsibility to live according to that knowledge. Jesus re reiterated the same things in Luke 12, 48. Every one to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As we will also see throughout the New Testament, false teachers will become prevalent in the early church and continue today. James actually, if you'll notice, in verse 2 uses the word we. We all stumble in verse 2. And most commentators believe that this instruction on the tongue has general application and that James probably intends to include all his readers in the first-person plural of this verse, we. This is a problem for everyone in the church, and I'm sure for everyone I'm looking at. It is for me. Well, when I was little, I always wanted to be a teacher. I was always playing school. When I graduated from high school, I went to Ball State and got a degree in elementary ed. I taught second grade. I've taught Sunday school for years, and it habits on and off for the last 20 years. I've uttered many words over the years, so it is with fear and trepidation that I even teach you on this subject. Why? because I'm sure in some ways my words have been hurtful, not totally truthful, or cause others to stumble. Even within the last few weeks, as I am so being mindfully aware of the power of tongue, someone dear to me pointed out to me how my words had deeply hurt her. I'm not perfect. I stumble in many ways, but I have a perfect Savior, as Hebrews 5 and 9 tells us, and that is who I hope to draw you to by this teaching today. Well, did you know that women speak about 250 words per minute and men 125? <laughs> and according to Gary Smalley, who wrote Making Love Last Forever in Five Love Languages, in the course of a day, women speak 25,000 words to a man who only uses 12,000, which means we as are at greater odds of stumbling because we teach more words. So many words. What a caution to us. Paul, who wrote about one-third of the New Testament through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
was addressing those he loved almost at the end of his ministry in Ephesians, and it's recorded in Acts 20, 26 to 7. He said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And as we notice, James doesn't either, does he? Years ago, a friend of mine was sitting on an airplane with her Bible open, and she noticed the older gentleman next to her had tears running down his face. She said, sir, are you all right? Well, he said, I see your open Bible. I've been a pastor for, for most of my life, but it was only in the last decade that I came into a saving faith in Jesus. I'm weeping for all those I misled for so many years. Now, teachers, maybe you're teaching your children in a Sunday school class. We all stumble in many ways, but no matter whom we teach, we may, may we teach the truth. How I wish I would have been knee-deep into this lesson when I was in college, just to hear it. All right, so that's James 1 to 2. Let's look at James 3, 3 to 5. This is an explosion, really, of James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. And John uses the imagery of a bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder of a ship to stress his points that the size of the item used for control is significantly smaller than what it controls. I have a bridle up here for maybe with horsemen. My niece is an equestrian, and she met with me and taught me all about what a bridle does. I said, explain to me what it does. Well, this is the bit, and the bit goes in the horse's mouth, and it's not to cause pain, but much as pressure to obey the reins of those who are holding the horse. Well, the bridle, she told me, weighs probably around two pounds, but it controls an animal of anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds. The bit causes pressure to obey, but not meant to cause pain. What struck me as I studied this section was the outcome of these small objects. The bit causes the horse to obey, verse 3, and it guides the whole animal. It's all in the control of the one who holds the bridle. In the rudder, verse 4, you'll need to notice again the rudder guides the ship to wherever the will of the pilot directs. It is in the hands of the one who directs it. Douglas Moose states that just as the bit determines the direction of the horse and the rudder of the ship, so the tongue can determine the destiny of the individual. When believers exercise careful control of the tongue, it can be presumed that they are also are able to direct their whole lives in their proper divinely charted courses. They are perfect. But when the tongue is not restrained, small though it is, the rest of the body is likely to be uncontrolled and undisciplined. But the tongue, small, yes, boasts of great things. We see this everywhere. Bumper stickers, social media, bragging about something we received. We have much instruction about boasting or pride, and so did they. They had that wisdom liter literature of the Old Testament. They knew from Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast, again the word steadfast, love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So now we see the damage. (laughs) In verses 3, 5 to 8, I want you to look at me in your Bible. Verse 5, great forest set ablaze by such a small fire. I showed you that picture. 6, a world of unrighteousness. Remember, we just memorized in 120, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The tongue's a world of unrighteousness. Six, it stains the whole body. He's referring to the church at this time, and our causes will be talked about next week. But there was much quarreling and dissension. Again in six, it sets on fire the entire course of life whether in a church or a gym or an office or a neighborhood or in a friendship, the course is set. What's the mood? What's the attitude? The tongue can turn upside down every aspect of life. James could be referring to from the Proverbs 10.8, chattering, 10.18, gossiping or slander, 12.19, lying, 18.12 of Proverbs, arrogant boasting, all been listed here. And again in six, six is full, isn't it? Set on fire by hell. If you have an ESB study Bible at the bottom, it states, speech destroys for it comes from Satan himself. Jesus also said in John 8, 44, Satan is called the father of lies. Oh, what irreversible damage can be caused but two people by unsubstantiated rumors that are often, pro- often proven false. It's not hard to see the proceedings of our own government or circles of friends. And all the horse's rider and the ship's captain have the ability to control the animal or ship. And though man was given control of all the animals, as we see in this part of Scripture from Genesis 1.28, no human being can control the tongue. John Calvin stated many years ago that a slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. And then he's not done. He continues to list in verse 8. It's a restless evil stressed also through the book of Proverbs, a restless evil. And Peter expanded on this, the apostle Peter. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his eyes are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Also in verse 8, full of deadly poison. From the Greek, it also would connotate venom, toxin, bitterness. Full of deadly poison. Well, then he moves on to some rhetorical questions. He uses this device in teaching all through the book. These questions show absurdity and contradiction, double-mindedness, as he often talked about. We use the tongue to bless our God and Father, and with it we curse people who made in the likeness of God. Well, at this time, the word of the curse, which is the opposite of blessing, was seen to have great power in the ancient world. 
To curse someone is not just to swear at him or her. It is to desire that he or she be cut off from God and experience eternal punishment. Harsh words. Jesus prohibited his disciples from cursing others. Indeed, they were to bless those who cursed them. Luke 6, 28. What makes cursing particularly heinous is that the one whom we pronounce damned has been made in God's image. And what's he say to this? These things ought not to be so. Today we might say, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Does a spring forth, does a spring pour forth both fresh and salt water? Can a fig bear, fig bear olives or grapevine figs? Can a salt pond yield fresh water? Impossible. So the absurdity is that a spring or water source can't produce sweet water one minute and bitter the next. Neither can a church reflect Christ or a Christian reflect Christ if he or she is known for gossip, slander, and pride. How often does it happen? We come in here, we hear a message, then we go out and start grumbling, complaining, or say, did you know what someone did? We're all guilty of it. Should not be so. Again, quoting from Moo, James' warning is obvious. What is good at heart must produce good. What is evil of heart will invariably produce evil. So the heart that is not right with God cannot help but produce ungodly speech. Only a renewed heart can produce pure speech. And consistently, though not perfectly, pure speech is to be the product of the renewed heart. So what do we do? We're so aware of the damage that can be caused by our words. And if you're following along, I don't know if you're following along, you might turn your outline over now. What do we do? The best way to stop a fire is to prevent it. Do you know who this is? Smokey the Bear. It's, Smokey is an American I, I, icon developed in 1944 by the U.S. Forest Service. It's the longest-running public announcement in the United States history, and it educates the public. And listen what it, it educates about the dangers of unplanned, human-caused wildfires. The spark, the tongue, sets the forest ablaze. The California fires. fires. I showed you those pictures. Well, my brother lives in Simi Valley, or he used to. He just moved. But in Simi Valley, when you've probably heard of it, it's, there's lots of forests around him and lots of brush. And before his neighborhood was built, they put in huge fields of succulents around it to protect it. And through the fires that were, you could see right from his hill a few years ago, it didn't touch their home. The succulents provide it. So what do we do to prevent it? When I was little, my mom washed my mouth out with soap. I still hate ivory soap to this day, the smell of it. <laughs> it may have stopped a curse word, but did not stop my mouth from other retorts. You've heard people putting tape over the mouth? Time out for a child. My friend's church handed out tongue depressors to the whole congregation when they talked about this passage. What's wrong with these? They're only temporary. And though there is no encouragement in these 12 verses, James has given us hope from earlier passages, hasn't he? We need to have a renewed heart. 
James 1.18 again, of his own will, Jesus, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then in 121, get rid of all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Where is it implanted? In the heart. We've looked at this verse twice this year. Laura taught on it, so did Drew. But I want you to listen as I read to you Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which talks about this heart. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel's words were fulfilled by Jesus when he ascended into heaven and asked the Father to him, send the Holy Spirit to indwell those who believe. Have you believed? A few weeks ago, Drew talked about two kinds of faith. Do you remember that lesson? That was a hard one, too. A mere acknowledgement of God, of who God is, which is a dead, useless faith, or a heartfelt, active faith. I remember studying the book of Acts many years ago, almost 30, and I heard about being quickened by the Holy Spirit which in other translations is called given life. And I want you to turn in your Bibles with me now. These are such important words. To Romans 8. Romans 8. 9. We're going to read uh, 9 to 11. Romans 8. These are the words of Paul. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through whose Spirit who lives within you. And we have assurance of this. Turn the page. I want you to look at Romans 10, 9 to 10, which are good ways to use the tongue. <laughs> I'm going to start with 8. Romans 10, 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For within the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A new heart. This is reflected in the way we use our tongue. Death or life is in the tongue. That's what's told us in Proverbs. I looked at Proverbs 18, 21 in three different versions. I thought it was real interesting because being quickened, or death or life. Proverbs 18, 21 in the ESV. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Contemporary English version. Words can bring life or death, 
Talk too much and you'll be eating everything you say. <laughs> and in the message, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Does it come from a renewed heart? Well, not only do we have our heart engaged, but we need to have our mind engaged. Think before you speak. James told us this in 1, 19 to 20. Know this, brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, so to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And on the screen, you will see a reminder. We've made you all refrigerator magnets. Maybe you don't need this, but I do. And years ago, I heard an acronym for the word think. And so if we get our mind involved and think according to these letters, before you speak, think, is what you're gonna say true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Usually if you think about all those things before you talk, you'll probably only use half your words. <gasps> so that's in your rooms if you think you could use that. Remember Christ is present. The word is God with you. He indwells you. He's present. Would you speak the words you speak if he was physically present? We will learn in a few weeks from James' letter in 5.9, the judge is standing at the door. At the end of the day, take an inventory of the words you use. Did they build up or tear down? Did they diffuse a fire or did they ignite it? Are you becoming mature, complete, lacking nothing, as James would say? Can you say to the Lord at the end of the night, thank you for holding my tongue in that situation today? Or is it, again, forgive me for my tongue? Hopefully the more it will be, thank you for stopping me. Do you have an escape plan? How many schools have fire drills? What's gonna happen? In case something happens, here's what you do. What situations cause you to use your tongue in a wrong way? When you're tired, frustrated, when you try to control things out of your power? Maybe it's when you're having a girl's night out. Ah, how about holiday gatherings? Make pre-decisions to be cautious before you speak. One of the leaders said yesterday that someone in her group had been praying for three weeks before Thanksgiving that she would measure what she said. Pray and be prepared. Recognize who or what pushes your buttons and seek to get a hold on it before you are in the situation. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's the last one? Self-control. Have an escape plan. Have you ever asked someone to hold you accountable? How humbling is this? I run things by my husband, Jim. Sometimes I don't like what he says to me. <laughs> he holds me accountable. He caused me, though, to look beyond my own emotions. A good friend, a husband, will bring you back to the truth. Jim has said to me before, I think your words were a little harsh. And though I didn't like hearing it, it really made me think. Have someone hold you accountable. A few weeks ago, I got a text with one of, from one of my friends with three others and said, please pray. I have to see my brother today, and I want that I have God's words, not mine. She asked us to pray. Oh, 
people that are accountable. Prevent, prevent, prevent. Only you, with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit, can possibly prevent the terrible damage that can be caused by the misuse of the tongue. Well, as we also see in California, there's lots of repair and restoration going on. So how do we do this? How do we restore and rebuild? That's the encouraging part. We can. We can all look back at words that have struck us down and actually changed our course of life or how we felt about ourselves. We can't take back those words or the damage maybe they've caused by the misuse. But we can try to repair. Who do you or I need to go to and apologize for the way we spoke? A husband, friend, a neighbor? Or perhaps someone has apologized to you and you can't forgive them. I had harbored in my heart something someone said to me many years ago for weeks. I even avoided her in church. But then one day I was studying God's word and read Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Well, I did that. When I met with my friend, she had no idea she had offended me and was crushed to the core. What I had harbored for weeks, <laughs> I'd taken in the wrong way. My friend not only apologized, but we were able to hug and go forward refreshed and renewed. She graciously responded to me. And to this day, I don't even remember what was said. Who do you need to go to to try and restore a relationship? Resolve this. Today, if you need to, write a letter, make a phone call, meet for coffee. It's freeing. And offering unconditional forgiveness. Maybe someone hasn't apologized to you or they're no longer living and can't. I mentioned the words that my dad spoke to me that haunted me for years. One time I was at a Bible study and the speaker said to me, sometimes we have to forgive someone for something in the past even when an apology hasn't been given. That day in 1986, I got by my bed and asked God to help me forgive my dad. And he did. From that day forward, my relationship with my dad took on new life, and my old way of thinking of him changed. Oh, ladies, Christ showed his unconditional love for us by dying for all these sins of ours, what others have done to us. Can we not offer unconditional forgiveness to others out of love for him? Our small group's studying a book by Drew Hunter called Made for Friendship, and there's a quote he uses from Henry Ward Beecher that's just hit me hard. Every man should keep a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. Every man, woman, should keep a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. Forgive, be restored. And then here's something encouraging. Use words that encourage. I bet you can remember things that said to you that your head might have been down and it was raised up because of some word someone says to you. Whether a checkout person said, oh, you look really nice today. There's so many ways that we can encourage other. Our daughter Kathy struggled in school all her life. Just hard for her. We'd hear from teachers and have to get tutors, but she worked really, really hard and was accepted at Butler. One day, the head of the elementary ed department called my husband at work, and he thought, oh, no, 
what happened, what happened. Yeah. This woman, Dr. Shelley, head of the L.Ed. said, I just wanted to tell you what a wonderful daughter you have. She has gifts in teaching that we don't even know how to teach. Well, Kathy wanted Jim to repeat these words to her over and over again. It built her up. Words can build up. Words can tell you down. And finally, but most importantly, model the one who brought you forth by his own will. Jerry Bridges in the book Discipline of Grace says, Christ-likeness is God's goal for all who trust in Christ, and that should be our goal also. The words transformed and conformed have a common root. Form, meaning a pattern or mold. Being transformed refers to the process. Conformed refers to the finished product. Jesus is our pattern or mold. We are being transformed so that we will eventually be conformed to his likeness. Sanctification or holiness, the words are somewhat interchangeable then, is conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Just as the rudder guided the will of the pilot and the rider steers the horse, the bridle with the bit, may we allow our unbridled tongue to be reined in by the Lord Jesus Christ. May we follow his example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Tough teachings. As I was working on this the last few months, an old song kept coming to my mind, and I know most of you don't even know this, um, but it's called Cleanse Me, and it was Search Me, O God, and Know My Heart Today, and it's from Psalm 139. And so what I'd like us to do in closing is I've asked Becky to play it, and I'm going to have the words up there to three of the verses, and I want you just to reflect on these words hard, aren't they? We have to live them out, don't we? So if you would start, Becky, and then I'll close this in prayer.
let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as we go into this holiday season where we remember the light of the world, the Lord Jesus, may our words reflect this Lord of glory in a dark world. Only through your spirit can we possibly do this. And in the matchless name of Jesus, who I now pray, amen. <laughs>